Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Adriana Lirez Muni, who is Professor of Economics at UCLA. Her research examines the relationships between socioeconomic status and health, with a particular focus on education and income. Her most uh, recent work investigates the long term impact of government policies on children by analyzing the effects of programs like the Mother's Pension Program and the Civilian Conservation Corps implemented during the first half of the 20th century. Welcome, Adriana. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start uh, with one of your recent papers uh, entitled, Do Youth Employment Programs Work? Evidence from the New Deal. Uh, you, you say that we study the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, the first and largest youth training program in the U.S. in operation between 1933 and 1942 to provide the first comprehensive assessment of the short and long-term effects of means-tested youth employment programs. So, so this CCC is something that was instituted right after the, the, the Depression? Yeah, so this is an interesting program, um, I think, and in, in also kind of relevant to today, so we can come back to that. But basically, um, you know, 1929 was the start of a very deep um, economic depression that we call the Great Depression. Yeah. And when Roosevelt was elected and came into office, he implemented a very ambitious set of programs to try and um, help people who were in very dire circumstances at the time. Yeah. And the CCC was the program that he chose to try and help young men in particular between the ages of like 17 and 25 or almost up to 28 who found themselves unemployed. And so one thing that was very um, startling um, at the time was that unemployment rates were very high. Um, you know, at the height of the Great Depression, they were about 30%. Yeah. But um, just like today, uh, young people's unemployment rate was much higher. It's typically twice as high. And so it's estimated that as many as 60% of 
of men in this age group were without a job. And there was a concern that, that, um, that this was very detrimental to these young men um, and that something ought to be done. And there was also a concern of um, what, uh, what would happen if they didn't, that they would be roaming around, that maybe crime would increase, that there would be maybe political uh, agitation as a result. And so there was, uh, and, the, and there was also an idea that that they that these individuals uh, were uh, perhaps in need of training or some some specific help for 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 them. And so he had this idea that was great. He's like, okay, we're going to take all these young men who can't find jobs, and we're going to put them to work in preserving. Uh, the land, natural parks, and um, irrigation. So, you know, an unfortunate thing that happened in the 1930s was that, in addition to the Great Depression, there was a dust bowl which uh, came through the U.S. and um, decimated a lot of agricultural land. Um, and so, the plan was to take these young men and send them to camps, and they would build roads and infrastructure, irrigate the land plant trees, and um, and it would be a win-win-win, as it were, because they would be uh, brought, um, taken from poor families who were in need of relief. They would be given some skills that would hopefully help them later on. So it was meant to provide both short-term relief, but also kind of help them in the long term. And it would be good for the nation because um, they would create these natural resources, enhance our natural resources, and that would also last a long time. And incidentally, they would also potentially help the communities nearby um, because these these men were coming around and they were given some income and they could spend the money around. So this they, was a national, national program? This was a national program and it employed yeah. up to like 3 million men during this time period. And so it was uh, instituted first in 33, um, but it ended with World War II. And 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 you got some data uh, on this. So this is uh, specific to Colorado and New Mexico, right? Yes. So um, we wanted to do research on this program. And in principle, there are uh, federal records that pertain to all the men who served during this time period. In fact, we're trying to... Uh, to, um, to access these records and, 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 and do more with them. But we were able to get records from two states. Um, yeah. And so we, we digitized the records from those states. And then we basically, those are records that tell us when people applied for the program or when they left the program, who they were, how they were, kind of what they did in the program, how long they served. And then we take those records and then we try to find those men um, later in other records. So we find them in the World War II enlistment records. We find them in the 1940 census. We, um, and then we also uh, found them in Social Security records. So we can see how um, much money they made throughout their lives and whether they applied for disability. And then we finally match them to death certificate records so we can see how long they lived. So, so that's that's really interesting. So, this matching process is just based on name or other characteristics. Um, interesting. So, um, that's kind of um, one of the difficulties of doing historical research is trying to to trace people over time. So, in the initial records, we know 
individuals' names, their date of birth. Sometimes we actually know social security numbers. Okay. So social security numbers were first created in 1935 with the Social Security Act. And so for a few people that applied after 1936, uh, some of them did have social security numbers, so we can use that. We also make use of the fact that we know where they came from, like when they applied, and they often in their records had to state who the mother or father was. And so we have information on their families and that helps us track these individuals. Okay, okay. So so this is a really interesting data set. So, so you know who participated, you have some, um, some outcomes information in terms of um, lifespan, education, um, and perhaps the lifetime earnings uh, and so on. So, so, so what did you find? Um, it, it's not necessarily a, a, a trial, randomized trial, but uh, did you find significance uh, in terms of outcomes in this cohort? Yeah, well, great question. So um, so you're kind of asking, how do we figure out whether this was good for people or not? Yeah. Um, and um, obviously, uh, I agree with you, it, it would be much better to have a randomized control trial where some people were given the opportunity to participate and some were not, and, and this would have been done randomly. And that, that would be the ideal the gold standard and, and, and kind of many youth training programs today have been evaluated using these trials. So in that sense, this, this research is um, harder to interpret because we have to come up with a means of figuring out what the effects were without, without having this kind of gold standard uh, randomization. So there's yeah. a couple of things you could do. What we end up doing in the paper is that we compare um, the outcomes of people based on how long they were in the program. So some people signed up for the program and within a month they were gone. Um, everybody was supposed to serve at least six months. So that was supposed to be the, the deal you signed with the government was yes. for a six month enrollment period and people could re-enlist. But when you look at the data, instead of seeing like six months and then 12 months and 24 months, you see there's distribution um, of the duration of service. Some people are a few weeks, five months, three months, a year, a year, and two months, you know. So there's like a lot of variation in how much people serve. Now, of course, you might say, well, but why did people leave? You know, the people who leave early are not the same as the people who leave late. Hmm. And we spent a lot of time in the paper thinking about that. So I can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. But in essence, we're kind of we're kind of comparing people who um, stayed longer with people who stayed less. And, and what we find is that people who stayed in the program for longer um, lived longer lives, had um, greater lifetime earnings, lower disability rates, um, mm -hmm. more education, they were, and they were taller, in fact, when they were medical. <laughs> so we think that they were in, in better health, that their health benefited from, from participation in this program, and that uh, their skills benefited in, were improved as as well, right? So, 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 in some sense, you're concluding that that this investment the government has taken uh, has uh, has positive uh, outcomes uh, for people. Uh, there is also avoidance of negative outcomes, right? So, the original intent was if if men 
in this age group, uh, you know, sort of uh, unemployed uh, in large numbers out there, uh, it might create a, a social unrest and, and related issues. Um, do we know uh, if this program actually prevented that or had any, uh, any effects on that? You know, it's a really interesting question, and we wanted to look at this. But, uh, we wanted to look at crime and social unrest, and unfortunately, we, we've not been able so far to um, to get any um, any evidence on this. So, okay. the, the the advantage of looking at the historical data uh, and something that that I should mention is that it turns out to be really important to um, to look at the long term. So, if you take our data and you look at how these people are doing. Um, one, two, three years out after the program, you'll find there are no differences between the people who served for a long time and the people who didn't. So it, it seems like in the short run, if you were to evaluate this program, you would look at this and say, you know, uh-huh, you did nothing. We wasted all of our money. Yeah. And so um, the benefit of the historical data is that we can compare what you would have found in the short run, what, what you see kind of over the lifetime, and over the lifetime, you kind of see substantial benefits. So, so that's kind of a good thing about the historical records is being able to take that long-term perspective. The downside is that there are many records that are very difficult to, um, to obtain. Um, yeah. and, and so we've been we've been limited in looking at this. And it's possible that there are decreases in crime and, and other things like that, and that that partially explain why we find improvements in in outcomes. But we mm-hmm. don't have direct observations on um, on those outcomes, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. So you say um, we find modest increases in the educational attainment of the participants and increases in short-term geographic mobility. Yes. Um, in contrast, we find no evidence that their labor force participation or wages increase in the short run. Mm-hmm. You say in the long run, uh, significant long-term benefits in both longevity and earnings suggesting short and medium-term valuations underestimate the returns of training programs. So. So, so that's interesting. Um, so do, um, do you have a view as to why we don't find short-term, impro- short-term um, uh, improvements? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I, 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 um, I, I want to comment on that and maybe want to come back to how is this relevant for today? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... I think there's a, a number of papers in a number of different areas that have been finding that um, that the benefits of various interventions um, are different depending on when we measure the benefits and what um, criteria we use to evaluate them. So, for instance, Heckman has done a very substantial amount of work following children who participate in early childhood education programs and he has data from randomized controlled trials and his research um, one of the main insights of the research that he does is that um, that it it can be deceiving to look at short-term outcomes and that also depend that 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 a lot also depends on what outcome you look at 
And yeah. why that is, is not entirely clear. But in my case, so I just wanted to say, I think there's now a number of domains, both for education and other programs, where we see that, you know, there are differences between short and long term. And sometimes the short terms look better than the, the, the long term. Sometimes it looks worse. Uh, and sometimes things fluctuate. In our case, I think that something that um, we didn't appreciate when we started the program, but we thought a lot about it afterwards, is that you know you you take a bunch of people, you let's say you send them to college or you send them to these training programs where they are getting some labor market experience, and then you then they go out into the world and. One thing that's happening in the 1940s is that the economy is doing really poorly. Right. And right. so this program might have helped these people a lot, their health, their social skills, um, their education, um, but they still cannot find any jobs. Right. And so you might, you know, then you look in 1940 and you're like, oh, you see they didn't find any jobs. They're not making any more money. And you're like, this program didn't work, but the economy is doing poorly at that time. Um, and so, and so, I think that that could be one explanation. There could be other explanations uh, that have to do with the fact that some of the benefits of um, uh, might just take up some time to to um, to be seen. So, for example, um, these men, what what would happen is that they would go to an office, they would sign up for the program, and then the government would send them someplace, sometimes very far away from their homes. And then after they finished the program, many of them went to live somewhere else. And so yeah. the program increased mobility, geographic mobility. But I think that, you know, when, I don't know if, you, if you've ever moved to a different country or a different state, you know, in the short term, there are a lot of barriers to adjustment, right? So you go to a new place and it's hard to make connections and find a job. And so, Again, it could be that it was good these people moved when we looked at where they moved. They tended to move to places where the wages were higher and where people lived longer lives. So they, they end up going to places that are better for them. But that betterness, if you will, is not going to materialize for them for a while because, of course, they have to move and they have to kind of reestablish their lives. And so that's a kind of another mechanism by which it could be that in the, in the short term, we just don't see any benefits, but over many years, um, they will be better off for having done this and having moved. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. Yeah, so I can definitely relate to that, uh, Adriana. So, so, so uh, from a policy perspective, then, um, in the current time, um, would you say that investments such as these uh, need to look at sort of the infrastructure aspects. So it's not just education. It is really what that education is going to deliver uh, uh, for the expected economy. So you, you can't really just invest into one thing and then hope everything is going to going to work out. Um, well, um, I, I, I'm not I'm not, not, not sure. I think that um, what when, when I talk about it for today, so, so in, in one part of the paper, we do an exercise where we um, related this, um, these findings to Job Corps. So one thing that's interesting about this paper is that um, this program was copied subsequently 
um, yeah. in the United States and in many other countries. And so today there are in fact a very large number of kind of youth training programs across the globe. And in the United States, the federal government um, has a program called Job Corps that um, receives a lot of federal funds. And it's come under a lot of fire. Uh, people don't think that it works very well. And interestingly enough, Mathematica evaluated this program. So they did a randomized control trial um, yep. back in the 90s. And they followed the short-term outcomes then. And there's a recent report of them where they track the outcomes of these individuals 20 years later. So um, why is this relevant? It's relevant because the program is very similar. So one of the reasons why we think it's interesting to go back in time is because the, the programs themselves have remained kind of remarkably consistent in how they you know, attract individuals and train them. Yeah. Um, and so in spirit, they're very similar. Uh, of course, the economy has changed substantially between now and then. So what does the, what, what the Job Corps experience find? Well, uh, almost the opposite of what we find. They find that in the short term, people are better off. <laughs> they are doing better in the labor market and, and, and wages. And in the long term, they seem to not be doing as well. And so they don't find long term benefits. So we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about this and, and um and again, I think that um, there are a couple of things that are that are um, that are um, important. With one one being kind of who who was selected for this program and why. Yeah. So in the 1930s, very large numbers of people participated um, in this program. Um, in the 1990s, um, it's a very heated labor market. And the people who participated are, in some sense, um, much more disadvantaged mm. relative to the population than the people in the 1930s. Right. Um, the labor market in the 1990s is doing really well. So when these people leave the program, they actually do great, <laughs> at least compared to in the short term in the 1940s. Um, but... but um, but the economy since 1980 is an economy that is not um, producing long-term gains for low-skill individuals. And so it looks since 1980s, the, the wages of individuals with low skill have remained rather stagnant. And so over the long term, um, these individuals who don't, I mean, they get this training, but it's not a lot of training. They're still kind of um, relatively... Uh, low skill um, mm -hmm. are, an econo are in, in, in an economy that is a very tough for them. Right. Whereas right. the people in the 1930s, you know, in the short term, uh, there's the Great Depression, so they're not doing well. But really, they spend most of their life in the post-World War II era, which is a period where low skill um, and low educated individuals do really well. And so... So, this, so there's a bias selection problem, uh, and then ultimately what we measure would be a function of how good the economy is. And so data has to be put in that context or somehow controlled for that. I don't know if it's possible. Um, but um, based on everything that you have done and seen, uh, Adriana, where, where do you come out on this? Um, so... 
you know, these types of programs are targeting, this is 20 to 28 year olds. Uh, there is there is some uh, hypothesis that by 20, it's, it's, uh, it's already too late. Where, where do you come out on this in terms of um, investing into that cohort of people? Is that, uh, is that overall beneficial for society? Um, yeah, interesting. So, I mean, to be clear, the program included 17-year-olds. Oh. Uh, and in fact, the majority of the people in our sample are like 17, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. rather than on the older ages. Um, it's true that um, a previous research, uh, I, I'm, again, I'm going to cite Heckman, um, argues that that after age five, sometimes people say after age three, it's all, <laughs> it's, it's all done. done. <laughs> but we, we revisited that question because we, we, um, we re-estimated kind of the, cost-benefit ratios or the, the so-called marginal value of public funds. And um, we find that this program, at least historically, when we evaluated retrospectively what it did, um, that it does kind of pay for itself because uh, people earn more money over the lifetime. And so, yeah. uh, and, and, and there's two factors, they earn more money over their lifetime, so they pay more taxes. So that ultimately goes back into the coffers of the state, but they, they also live longer. And so if you want to count those benefits in terms of health, so this goes back a little bit to the discussion about Heckman, you know, a lot of the, the how you think about these programs depends a lot on the metric that you use to evaluate them. So if the metric is going to be, you know, the employment rates three years down the program, then this program failed and it's not cost effective. Yes. If you use the long-term lifetime earnings and longevity of individuals, then the program pays for itself. Um, so is it better or worse than other programs that would say, so, so if you had money and you had to choose between spending it on the three-year-olds and spending it on the 19-year-olds in this program, what would you do? Well, that's, that's a much harder computation to, to make and it's hard to find other programs that have similar numbers, but in my other work, we looked at cash transfers that were directed towards children under the age of 14. And those were given to uh, children roughly of the same cohorts, 1900 to maybe 1925 cohort. And so we compare the cost benefit there and, and we find them to be, to be similar. In other words, we don't find that giving the money to the kids that are poor under the age 14 is substantially better than giving it to the 19-year-old men who are also poor during the Great Depression. So um, more, more data would be needed on this. More, yeah. But, uh, and, you know, that the, there are a lot of spillover effects that, that is tough to capture. So avoidance of healthcare costs if people get, get more healthy, um, avoidance of crime, uh, there are a lot of spillover effects that that ultimately don't get captured in the data, right? So that's right. So yeah, so it's uh, more data would be needed, but intuition, uh, I, I guess, uh, intuition is that there isn't significant. Uh, number one, there is a there is a return to this type of investment, and if I understand from you correctly, Adriana, you don't see much of a difference in terms of investments in less than 14 and above 14, at least the data doesn't specifically show 
show that. That's right. And and you're correct in saying that, you know, the estimates that we have probably underestimate the value of the program because we as you as you say, you know, we don't observe whether there are effects on crime or political agitation. Um, we do observe that they're less likely to apply for things like disabilities. So that goes in the direction that, that, that you're arguing. But there's also something else we don't measure in the paper that's, of course, of great value, which is uh, the value of national parks and the value of preservation of the land. So, you know, this program wasn't like an education program alone where they were just training in some abstract sense, they were actually doing stuff. And if you've ever been to Yosemite or other national parks in Colorado and other places, um, a lot of the facilities in those parks uh, were first developed by CCC man. So uh, we don't do this in the paper, but obviously these parks remain today and they're beloved. And um, it would be very interesting to think about how to incorporate the value of those games Right, right. I want to quickly touch on another paper that's sort of related, the association between educational attainment and longevity using individual level data from the 1940 census. Um, you say we combine newly released individual data from the 90, 1940 full count census with death records and other information available in family trees to create the largest individual data to date to study the association between years of schooling and age at death. Uh, so it's a very specific question. So what, what did you find in this data? Okay, I should step back and say, I, I've worked on this topic for, I guess, 20 years now, almost since my dissertation. And um, the, 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 the topic there, um, I started working on a long time ago because a lot of people have observed a very large association between um, educational attainment measured by years of schooling and health outcomes, including mortality. Now, so that that's not new. Um, in fact, on the first study looking at this came back back in 19 in the 1960s by Kitagawa and Hauser. And, and these kind of has been observed in a lot of different places. What's kind of exciting about this is that um, so typically, when you're going to look at mortality, you you are looking at aggregate data, and so yeah. you're looking at mortality rates by education level. What's new here is that uh, we can kind of observe everybody that was alive in 1940, and then we can find when exactly all of those people died thereafter. So we can kind of at the individual level say, this is the age that you died at, age 70, and this is how much schooling you had. And then that allows us to kind of uh, dig in more into this association. And what we do in this paper is to try and understand why that association varies um, and, 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 and how it varies with the conditions in, during your childhood. And so, um, what that paper doesn't answer, which I've also spent a lot of time trying to do, is is the causal question. If I were to, you know, give you an opportunity to go to college, would that cause you to live longer? You know, right. that was the subject of my dissertation, and that remains a hotly contested issue. I had found yeah. my dissertation that the answer was yes, and I, I I did that by looking at compulsory schooling legislation 
in the US. So, so similar to what we have talking before, I have a lot of papers that kind of look at policies in the early part of the 20th century and then see how they uh, affected outcomes later on. So in the second part of the 20th century. And so I had taken advantage of the fact that some states had changed their compulsory schooling law. So let's say that you were born in uh, 1910 and in Massachusetts and you and the law required you to go to school for seven years. And then, yeah. then that year the legislation changes and then the people born one year after in 1911 are now being required to go to school for seven years instead of six or eight years instead of seven. And so what I did there was to kind of compare these these cohorts and see kind of who lived longer, the people who were forced to go to school for six years or those seven years. Now, I, I have found that they, they lived longer, um, but a lot of people have replicated this research in other countries and using kind of better methods. And, um, and they have found a variety of, of estimates and many studies that have found no effects. And so the, the, the question remains very contentious on uh, whether education really um, has this so-called causal impact on, on health and mortality. The, this paper tries to ask kind of like a different question. So as a, as a result of that work, I started asking myself <clears throat> whether we should expect these effects to always be the same. So, you know, when you, you look at this research and you find very disparate findings across papers, you, you can kind of try to explain them two ways. You know, one way is to say, well, some studies are good and some studies are bad. And, you know, you can kind of say, my study was a bad one and maybe there's no effect of education on health and, you know, there are methodological differences that kind of explain everything. And, and there certainly are differences. And there are some studies that are better than others. And mine is, is old. Um, but there's another thing that comes across when you look at this, which is that even when you look at within the same study with the same data and the same methodology, you you find that that these estimates are different. You know that um, that if you look at people born early in the century, the effect seems to be more pronounced. If you look at people born later in the century, the effect seems to be closer to zero. So so I started asking myself whether you know, whether it's causal or not, kind of, why would there be so much difference um, in this effect, you know, this association? Uh, could it be that it's sometimes zero and it's sometimes positive? Could it be that sometimes it's even negative, you know? So how would we think about that? And so this this paper is, is an attempt to dig into that question of what explains the heterogeneity in these estimates that, that we see? And is there some plausible explanation uh, for this? And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And in this paper, what we find that's very interesting is that is that the conditions under which you grew up um, have a big effect, meaning, you know, the re, let's call it the returns to schooling, although you and I will understand this is not causal, but the, the returns to schooling are going to be large for some people and small for some people. And, and you step back, you know, it, it kind of makes sense because 
again, we go back about our discussion about the CCC, but if you look at the work by Golding and Katz, and if you try to look at the association between education and earnings, so forget about mortality, just look at earnings, you'll find that, that it has actually varied quite a bit over time. So back in the 19, uh, 1915, 1920s, um, when there was a lot of inequality, the returns to schooling were actually huge, comparable to what they are today, very high. Um, and then in the middle of the century, uh, they, they go down very substantially. And in the 1970s, they're close to 2%, maybe less. And some people are at that point arguing that there's a thing like the overeducated American, and maybe too many people are going to school because it doesn't have any payoff. And then sure enough, the 1980s start, and then um, as inequality increases and there's other important factors changing the economy, um, the returns to school rise again a lot. And so right now, the returns to th something like college are, are just as high as they were back in the 1920s, but there's been quite a swing. And so when you, when you look at it from that broad historical perspective, you realize that, again, the time and place that these investments take, uh, when these investment occurs, um, matters. And some people, this investment may end up being a good idea or may end up being a bad idea for, for reasons that are um, beyond the individual's control. And then we might not even as policymakers um, have, have control over or can even foresee. Hmm. That, is, that is so interesting. So um, would, would you say, Adriana, that um, when you have a society uh, that has high levels of inequality, um, it's a risky place to be. So education has higher returns because education is also a hedge against that risk. Uh, whereas when you have more egalitarian societies, you have less risk and, and, uh, and education has lower returns. Is that, is that generally true? Well, I, I don't want to go as far as say that. I want, I, I want to say in the data historically, uh, there is an association in the time series, meaning that what, what you what you see is that um, um, in times where they, it, in fact, in the United States, in periods where with great inequality, the returns to schooling have been higher than in periods with low inequality um, uh, afterwards. Uh, whether those two facts are related or how they're related, I think is is it can be controversial. Um, it depends a lot on what you think, but there's certainly some theories that would suggest those two things are linked. Um, yeah, but you can also look at cross-sectionally, right? So you can look at you know maybe some Scandinavian countries against the U.S. or China or something like that, uh, and and you could look at again return to education. Uh, I wondered if you see significant difference. Um, there is a lot of variation across countries as well in terms of, of the returns to schooling. And um, and I don't know whether anybody has produced the figure you're suggesting, which is to plot the return to education against um, the level of inequality. Uh, of course, you know, to some extent, if, if you did and you found the relationship, some people would say it might be just mechanical. In other words, if it's true that people with college degrees are making a lot more money than people without, well, that is kind of the definition of inequality. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 
That is true. That is true. Uh, we'll take a quick break, uh, Adrian, and when we come back, we talk about a couple of your working papers. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, so we are back, uh, Adriana. We were talking about um, the returns to education, returns to programs uh, targeting um, targeting young people. Um, perhaps uh, we, we look we looked at the CCC program, which is uh, uh, which was administered administered right after the the Great Depression, uh, and some some of the recent programs. Um, I want to go into a couple of your working papers. Uh, they are related, but in different areas. The first one is the incentive effects of cash transfers to the poor. Uh, you say all redistributive and social insurance programs trade off the potential benefits of transfers with the disincentive uh, incent- disincentives these programs generate. Um, we investigate this trade-off using newly collected lifetime data for 16,000 women who applied to the Mother's Pension Program, the first cash transfer program in the U.S. I'm I'm not familiar with the Mother's Pension Program, so 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 when did this start? Yes, uh, great question. So um, today, I guess it's the people often talk in the United States about welfare. Um, today, that refers to uh, the temporary aid to needy families, TANF, and today that program is, is small. It used to be uh, bigger, it used to be AFDC, um, uh, and it be, this program became kind of small after the welfare reform that Clinton did in, did in 1995. Mm-hmm. But these are the programs that essentially uh, target poor families and give them money, just straight out cash. And that's what people, when they think about welfare, this is what they think about. And as it turns out, um, the first welfare programs in the United States date back to 1911, and they came in the form of mother's pensions programs. So in your mind, the typical image of a person in welfare is like a mom, a single mom with children. And that's in part because that's how these programs were designed way back then. So um, if... um, so what was happening is that um, back in the turn at the turn of the century, if a family was really poor, um, then um, the state might um, take the children away and put them in orphanages. Yeah. And um, at the turn of the century, there was um, a lot of concern about this policy because um, there were reports coming out that children fared very poorly in in orphanages. Um, And then there was kind of new understanding of the importance of mothers for child development. And so um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, puts together this conference on children where they kind of argue, you know, we're doing things wrong. Children belong with their mothers. Instead of paying orphanages and taking away the children from their moms, 
if the dad has died and the mom is, is really poor, why don't we just give the money to the mothers? And so this was called the mother's pension programs or the widow's pension program, partly because the idea was that um, women with young children were not expected to work at the time. And if they lost their husband, either to disability or, um, or because the husbands died, um, yeah. it was not uh, through their own fault, but what would they expect to do? They had nothing to do at the time. You know, if there were such dire circumstances and they had no family, the kids would end up in an orphanage, as, as, uh, as, as I said. And so there was this great idea. Let's give that to the moms. And there were a lot of people who were in support of this program. And so that it had different names. And the reason for this is that uh, this was a state level program at the beginning. So Illinois is the first state to pass this program. And it, it's an extremely popular program. And, and um, between 1911 and 1935, almost all of the states of the United States institute this, this program. And then what happens is that um, in 1935, you know, so when the Great Depression hits again, um, the states and the, and the counties that um, were um, funding this program run out of money because nobody has money. And so in 1935, with the Social Security Administration Act, the Fed decides to fund the state programs by uh, giving them um, matching funds. And that's how the modern welfare system in the United States emerges. At the time, it was called Aid to Dependent Children, ADC. That then becomes AFDC, and then it becomes TANF, kind of what it, what it is today. And over time, you know, it expanded. Originally, in some states, it the money was only available for widows, and then it expanded to uh, women who'd been abandoned or divorced, or women who whose husbands were in jail or whose husbands were disabled or something like that. And so there are different um, different criteria, and over time, it becomes more generous. And kind of by the time we get to Clinton and stuff that this becomes a to families, right? So now it's not only necessarily even just to, to women with children, although they still kind of are the majority of recipients today. Um, so in this paper, so I have, I have several papers on this. Uh, we collected administrative records of, um, in, of several counties. So this program was administered and funded by counties, even though it was kind of passed at the state level. Yeah. So we collected records from the counties. And the, the first paper that we wrote about this um, was looking at whether this had benefited children. So it's an interesting question because in the United States, the um, a lot of the debate surrounding welfare and cash transfers has to do with the behavior of the parents. Mm -hmm. Are people going to cheat the system and apply even though they don't need the money? Are they going to stop working when they get the money? Are they going to have more children? Are they going to move to states that are gen or places that have generous welfare benefits? And so a lot of the debate in the states and a lot of the academic work surrounded these issues of, of incentive effects. And when I uh, started looking into this, and I, I was wondering, you know, the, the main objective of this program at the time was to help children growing up in poverty. It wasn't really so much to help the adults, yeah. really to help the children. Um, and, and in part, like the judges at the time who were in favor of this, for instance, were a lot of judges in the juvenile uh, court system who argued things like, I see a lot of um, children coming by my court 
and they're not bad kids, but they're just unsupervised. And if you know, if we force the mom to work or something, who's going to look after their children? We just need to make sure that the mom can stay at home. Yeah. And um, and so what I was wondering was, what do we know about these programs? Do they actually help children get out of poverty and do better? So we wrote a first paper where we did something similar to what I described with the CCC. We looked at the administrative records of children and we tracked them over the century to see how they did. And we, we found that the children actually did better in that paper. We found we could only track boys and I can come back to discuss that. Um, but we looked at the boys and we found that the boys had higher education somewhat higher earnings and they lived longer lives. And so it was interesting to see that, that the program did appear to, to benefit the intended beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. and of course, after we wrote that paper, we had to go back to the old question that concerned everybody, which was at, at what cost? So if we give this money to the parents, okay, the kids are doing better, but what are the efficiency costs? Is it true that, they're going to that the adults are going to do these all these other things that we don't want them to do and so in the second paper that we have right now we reassess that question with this historical setting so we look at all these moms that receive these monies and we try to look at um several aspects of their behavior so one did they change their marital and fertility behavior? So the number one thing that women did at this point, particularly white women, and I, and I really only have mostly white women in my study. We can discuss that again in a moment. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, they were, again, as I said, not expected to work, and very few of them, particularly if they had children and young children, and they had very limited opportunities in the labor market also, so a lot of what these women did was remarry, and we tracked the marriage records of the women, and we we find that almost fifty percent of them marry again. Um, you know, individual uh, advocates uh, who are against these kinds of programs argue that these programs prevent marriage, or delay marriage, or change the types of people that women marry. So we looked at this, and we found. We found that women did delay marriage a bit as a result of getting the program, uh, but not by very much, like maybe a year. Yeah. Um, and then we found that, um, that they did not marry any um, different men. So when we look at the new spouses and we compare women who got money and women who didn't get money, we don't find that they find that they, their spouses look very different. Um, we also looked at these women to see um, what about where they lived, what about where they, whether they worked or not. And we do find that there's a little bit of an effect on, on migration um, in that women who received money in a particular county were more likely to stay in that, in that county as a result. Hmm. On the other hand, we found that um, there's almost no effect on uh, the share of them that work. Now, to be clear, many of them were not working to begin with. So again, working at this time period is not uh, a particularly uh, common activity in this group, but um, but these women in the short term or the long term were not any more or less likely to, to hit the labor force. 
Um, so, Diana, a quick question. So uh, you say in the long run, transfers had no effect on work, marriage, or fertility behaviors, as you said, nor did they diminish or improve the economic conditions of recipients or the longevity. Yeah. So th- these are the recipients, but you did mention that the kids actually had um, actually had longer lives and, and higher earnings. Did I understand that correctly? That's correct. And so at the end of this new paper, we try to put all of this together and kind of say, okay, how does it all shake out? Is yeah. it good or is it bad? Because the kids appear to be doing better. The moms don't appear in the long run, don't appear to be better off. So we do find that the moms in the short term change their behavior a little bit. But when you look at how long they live and kind of whether they end up in a in a household that's poor and things like that, we, we see no difference. So in some senses, is is bad news for both uh, kind of conservatives and Democrats in the sense of like, if what you care about is the women, the women themselves in the long term are unaffected by this. They're obviously better off in the short term. They've been given money, yeah. um, but they don't live longer or are less likely to be in poverty as a result of this. Um, but but so then we do a kind of an evaluation of the, the overall thing. So is the short term change in the behavior of the mom uh, bad enough to offset the benefits that we see for children? And, yeah. and when we do that computation, what we find is that um, the the changes in the behavior of the mom are are rather small and as a result rather small benefits for children uh end up making the program um cost beneficial yeah and so 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 to, to truly say that though um don't we have to have some sort of a net present value of yeah. the incremental benefits uh, that we can measure, or is, is there is there something along those lines? Yes, that's what we attempt to do in the paper. So we have some estimates for the children and how much they earned over the lifetime, um, yeah. and and we know how long they lived, and we have the similar numbers for the mothers, and then we do a present discounted value computation, um, and that's how we come up with a conclusion that at the end of the day, the program seems that if there are relatively minor, so if our first paper is correct, and there are some limitations to that first paper we can discuss, but if that first paper is correct, then the in, the negative incentive effects that we observe among women in the short run are not large enough to offset the benefits. Right, right. So, so, so from a policy perspective, again, Adrian, I'm thinking... Um, we have more data now. There are a lot more studies like this. Are we in a position to say, you know, if you were to design a new program now, are we in a position to plug and play into a model and, and get some sort of expected ROI on an investment like this? It's an interesting question. I'm working on this. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the, there's a lot of challenges um, associated with this, you know, so the, 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 the first is that the first study that we did have some limitations, like for instance, I already mentioned that we only followed boys and there's a lot of recent studies that show substantial differences between boys and girls. And so, uh, 
that's something that I'm investigating now in another paper. Um, this another limitation of the first study is that um, we could only match find um, a subset of the boys, so maybe maybe fifty percent of our sample. And so now we're trying to 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 improve that, but that's important because in our original study we find a uh, some heterogeneity in the effects. And so giving the money, for instance, to widows did not seem as beneficial as giving it to women who had been abandoned or who had never been married, women who, who actually historically tended to be much poorer. So we tended to find that the benefits of the money uh, were not the same for everyone. And so when you think about kind of extrapolating this to a new population, you really have to be careful who this new population is. Is it the type of people who are going to benefit from this a lot or is it the type of people who is not going to benefit from this a lot? And as I mentioned, our original study also had a large uh, limitation, which was that the records we were able to obtain uh, mostly pertain to white women. Yeah. Um, and so there are like a host of other issues there. So. So this heterogeneity and kind of some limitations of what we have there and other studies have similar limitations, I think make it, make it challenging. But there's another uh, issue, which I think is similar to what we discussed with CCC, which is, you know, um, the, the economy changes and over time and, and the norms change over time. And I think that also makes it difficult to kind of predict going forward how beneficial these 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 transfers uh, might be, you know. Um, for instance, uh, um, when these programs were first implemented, they were very popular, and people yeah. had a lot of sympathy for widows. And in a lot of places, this there was no no shame, let's say, of of, of being helped. Um, but we know that that changed a lot throughout the century, and there's a bunch of work. Uh, starting with Robert Moffat's work on, on, on stigma. And so that, that could make a difference, you know, uh, how many people in your community are doing this? What's the perception? What kind of opportunities they are? So it's, it's, very, it's very challenging. Right, right. Yeah, and, and obviously this has to be put, as you say, in the, in the modern context, how things have changed. Um, there are different aspects too, right? Um, and so, um, you know, health, family structure, location, uh, all of that uh, sort of play into it. Uh, I want to go into another paper that you have on a different topic, uh, a unified model of cohort mortality for economic analysis. Uh, you said you propose a dynamic production function of population health and mortality from birth onwards. Our parsimonious model provides an excellent fit for the mortality and survival curves for both primate and human populations since 1816. Um, could you talk a bit about um, what the parameters are and, and, and what the model, uh, how the model is constructed? Yeah, okay. So um, we've been talking a lot about um, the kind of empirical work that I've been doing that tries to look at, you know, schooling, compulsory schooling, giving money to people, giving training to people, and things that happened before the age of 25, and how that has consequences on 
economic and health outcomes kind of later in life. And, and I'm only one of many, many people that are kind of interested in these questions and of how events in childhood um, have these long-term consequences. Sometimes going back in utero, um, lots of exposures to pollution or disease or other types of things. And so there's a, there's a very large set of papers and of people, excellent people other than me, who, who are looking at this. And one thing that I was interested in is um, I, I study mostly mortality. I know it's kind of hard to tell from what, <laughs> what we've been talking about, but, but one com very common denominator in a lot of my work is that, is that I study how long people live and what, how, the rates at which they die. And, um, and from that perspective, I was interested in kind of what is a model that links uh, so we have empirical evidence that links events early on with outcomes later on. But what is a model that allows us to think about this? And in particular, you know, um, people often worry about a lot of things in this kind of study. So, for instance, let's say that you um, that you study. Uh, so there's a famous study by, by Doug Almond that looks at the impact of the 1918 flu pandemic on later life outcomes. And so he finds that people who are more exposed to the pandemic um, are were more likely to be disabled um, as, as adults, for example. Um, and one concern that you, you might have over there is, um, but, but you only observe adults that survived. And what if the pandemic killed a bunch of them? And how, how should we think about that? Um, and how should we think about the effects at age 20 versus age 40 versus age 60? when are you expected to see effect and in kind of what's the total effect you know right. how, how should we think about the total thing and um and so in this in this model what what we what we do is just try to write something very simple you know um i think uh just a, a process that would allow us to to kind of um link what's happening at each age for a given cohort with the number of people who are dying in that cohort uh, surviving later and surviving later on. And so it's, it's um, kind of a conceptual model where we think of a population as um, having a normally distributed health that yeah. they're born with. And then every period, um, there's, a, there's three things that, four things that may happen to them. So. Right. Every period, there is a potentially an, an, an investment. So you can think about the environment. So let's say we're talking about monkeys just to make things simple. They live in a given environment and every period, they, the environment provides food or doesn't. There's rain or there isn't. Um, there may be diseases, you know. So there are kind of a set of investments and, um, that are available to that population. And then... Yep. Uh, but every period, there is kind of a deterioration of, of the body that, that occurs. Uh, this occurs at kind of the cellular level, even the chromosomal level, um, mm -hmm. and at all different levels. And so every period, there's like a user cost that kind of compounds in the way that engineers think about this. It compounds um, at an exponential rate, not quite exponential rate, but basically when there are a lot of components in a, in a given machine, um, at some point, the, the the failure of each component means that uh, the the failure of the whole becomes um, um, more likely um, overall. 
And so there's kind of a depreciation aspect to this. But then there are also these kind of random shocks that people um, find uh, happen every year. So regardless of how healthy or unhealthy you are, um, you may just uh, get hit with a, um, a disease that year or something. And, yeah. and, and in this model, um, individuals who find who, whose health falls below a certain threshold die. They can also die because they have an accident that's completely unrelated to, to their health. And so we write down this very simple model and then we, we kind of estimate it and we try to see if this very simple model that we wrote uh, can match the profile of mortality or of survival of cohorts from, from birth to death. So we take data yeah. where you, you look at, say, chimps or humans. In, in this case, we looked at French people born in a given year. And then um, the data tracks them until all the cohort dies. And so we can kind of see, and we see, does this model that we write kind of uh, fit the data? And, and the answer is yes. And the reason this was interesting to begin with is that now we can kind of conduct thought experiments about what happens if, for instance, one period when you're five or when you're 10 or when you're 20, we increase the investment in you. And then we can we can trace this out in the model. We can say, okay, now how many more people are gonna die? At what age are they gonna die? How's the life expectancy gonna change? We can also say, suppose that something really bad happens in utero, then um, we can ask questions like how much more investment do we need to put into these people to compensate them so that, you know, uh, that we can undo the harm that occurred um, before. And so we use this model to kind of see, uh, can this model be helpful to explain socioeconomic differences in health? Um, if, we, if we think that those with more resources invest more in health, then does that explain the patterns that we see in the data? Can we use this model to explain uh, what we observe for the effect of neuter shocks and um, we argue that the model is is consistent. So we, the hope for this is that this is a very simple model and um, it needs to be uh, made more sophisticated. But, uh, but the basic model is very good at matching uh, the data that we do have. And so yeah, kind of starting building block, we think about it. Yeah, simpler models are always better. So, so to, to understand this, um... Adriana, so you have a simple model that has factors uh, in utero shocks, uh, wars, um, extreme weather, nutrition, and so on. And you can take a data on a system. You can essentially come up with coefficients that explains that uh, explains that outcomes. That how you how you do it. Um, well, what we do is, is kind of simpler <laughs> and yeah. even even less less ambitious than what you stated. Although we're we're going in the direction that you, that you're suggesting. I mean, we we first write a model and we say, let's say that there is a an, a health in utero, and let's say, so now if we were able to, um, with some other data, yeah. assess how that health in utero changes. So if you give me a shock and you tell me the flu pandemic happened, um, I can try to feed that into my model and make a prediction about 
the health and longevity of, of this particular cohort. Now, in the paper that we wrote, we don't have this, uh, this data on the shocks, you know, we don't have data on wars and famines and all of that directly. All, all that we do is to demonstrate that in this model, if I was to lower the in utero health, or if I was to shock your health at age 20 because of say World War II or something, um, I could generate patterns that are very similar to the patterns that people have documented for these types of events. Hmm. Yeah, the, the the disease shock question becomes really complicated, right? So uh, to, to compute a disease burden, uh, there are different types of disease shocks, right? So, you know, COVID-19, for example, we see populations who have had perhaps multiple coronavirus infections when they were growing up are actually more resistant uh, to COVID-19. So a shock in itself may not have a negative, overall negative effect, um, you know, on, on the subject, perhaps. But, so, and, you know, it's interesting because in, in the model that we have, there are several yeah. mechanisms by which uh, these kinds of effects could happen. Um, mm -hmm. So one, one, uh, one is selection, obviously, that people who are exposed early on may, may not survive, or only the ones that are actually quite healthy and have right. some kind of innate immunity will survive. But there's other ways in which you can kind of um, simulate in the model this kind of immunity effects because um, one can think of, uh, of these shocks as, as affecting the, the, the variance um, of uh, resources among the individuals. And so we can also um, uh, explain these kind of uh, what doesn't kill you, make you stronger kind of effects in the model, not, not <laughs> yeah. just through selection, but um, through this mechanism that says, you know, a shock is not, a shock is not a shock. It's not the same for everyone. Like COVID-19, what's happening today is not the same for me as for you as for other people. Some people are going to be exposed, some people are not. Uh, some people who are exposed are going to have very uh, hard um, and difficult consequences, and some other people are going to have many minor consequences. And so if you then um, in model this is the shock that has a certain variance and that variance is allowed to uh, be you know positive meaning that some some people are actually going to benefit from this and so it's possible in this model to to get these effects and that's why we're kind of so excited with this model which is it's, it's a very simple model and we're really building on ideas that have been around for a, a really long time what's exciting for it is that it's very simple and it seems to be uh, very um, kind of accurate when we, we try to, to to look at the predictions that it can make, but it definitely needs more uh, work. So kind of the point of this first paper, and if people like it, is to say, okay, here's a simple setting. It does a pretty good work job. Now let's make it, uh, let's bring more data to the table. Let's bring more theory to the table and make it make it more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. So, so Adrian, in conclusion, you know, you have done a lot of work in this area. Um, generally, you know, the broad area of um, cash transfers, education investments in early childhood, um, later childhood, 
um, and the and the net economic impact on society. So, from a contemporary policy perspective, based on all the work that you have done and seen, um, you know what would be one or two areas that you would suggest we should focus on from an investment perspective. So you you ask me about policy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, in other words, you know, I'm, I'm asking in a sort of the general question, which is, suppose you say I want to invest into uh, a population and I want to make that investment to have a higher, higher return, has a net positive net present value. What would it, you know, what's the most likely type of investments that would do it? Well, um, you know, I'm I'm not sure I'm in a good position to to answer <laughs> this question because it's a very broad, broad question. Um, I think what I what I want to say is that um, that there's definitely a lot of evidence that these investments in young people up to early twenties. Yeah. Have can have very large returns. In in kind of one message that I do think is important is for 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 people to think about the fact of how we measure the value of things. You know, typically economists focus on things like GDP, um, <laughs> things like wages, and and these are clearly very important. But um, I think today. Um, we all realize that, I, mean, I think we always did, but I think it's much more salient today that, that things like health and, and longevity are not the same as income. You might be able to, you know, they have a relationship, but they're not one and the same. And a lot of the programs that I've studied have very large returns or appear to have very large returns in these non-economic dimensions as well as economic dimensions. And, and it makes a big difference to think about these, these outcomes. And I think that's similar to the point that Heckman has made, you know, sometimes people think about education programs and they narrowly look at math and, and reading test scores. And then they say, well, if the test scores went up, good. If test scores went down, not so good. And I think that, you know, human well-being and welfare is broader than that and that our skills are broader than those skills and so what Heckman is, has found and kind of what I'm also building up to it is saying you know things like things like social skills uh, social networks uh, things like your health um, are also part of your human capital and part of what affects people's welfare so I think I feel comfortable saying that I think it's important that we think of these of these dimensions when we think about these programs um, and not focus uniquely on some um, narrow economic outcomes. Yeah. So so uh, so we measure things that that are easy to measure, <laughs> and so and so because we measure them, they are used to make policy. Uh, but I think if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that we need to measure things that are more difficult to measure uh, because ultimately that's what's going to make a difference. So suppose there is some sort of a metric uh, around human capital uh, and that takes a lot of things into account, right? Um, including even soft things like happiness and so on. 
Yes, um, and, and and I think you know I think a, a lot of really much smarter economists than me have been trying to advocate this position. You know, Amartya Sen argued for for a particular measure. The WHO um, and other international organizations have been trying to develop these different indexes, like a human development index that they have, that try to think about um, a broader way of thinking about our society and how well we, our populations are, how well off they are. And, um, you know, I think that uh, in my work, a lot of the outcomes that I look are just simply outcomes that people don't necessarily immediately think about. So when I first did my dissertation, I was looking at the effect of education on health. At first, a lot of people were like, but why would there even be an effect of education on health? Like, what's that about? Then I would go through the whole paper. And then sometime at the end, people would say, but isn't it obvious that there'd be an effect of education on health? Because, of course, people with more education have more money and they have different marriage patterns and they have access to doctors. So like, you know, and so it's interesting that that's kind of the the evolution that it went. And, and let's say for the CCC, it's kind of a similar issue and in, in for the uh, mother's pension, you know, um, the objective of the program might have been to not have criminals or not have boys agitating on the street. Uh, you know, that the, was the objective that they would live longer. I'm, I'm not so sure, but they did. And that's very valuable, right? They were in better health as a result. And they, they were, you know, helped in a number of dimensions that are maybe unexpected, but quite valuable. They, they, I can't look at it in my paper, but they also changed the number of friends they have, things like that. Um, <laughs> similar with the mother's pension program, you know, we find that it, it has significant impacts on life expectancy, which again, maybe most people don't think about that when evaluating programs, but it's a quite valuable. Outcome. Right. Excellent, excellent. Adriana, thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, good luck with this research. Thank, Thank you. you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.